At this time, we're going to actually look at how the apostle has taught the church at Corinth what they must do when certain kinds of practices serve as leaven to corrupt the body. And obviously, we'll talk for an hour. Then what you and I will do is we'll have some Q&A around how to look at its application. We called it gospel righteousness, how to deal with Um, the process of unleavening leaven that has a tendency to corrupt the body. So let me open in a word of prayer and then we'll get at our study in Jesus name. Amen. So we are looking at first Corinthians chapter five in first Corinthians chapter five. We're dealing with a problem that I shared with you for the last two or three weeks is both an evidence and outcome of a chaos orientation that has dominated the folks at Corinth. And you guys know we have dealt with the pejoratives around what it means to be a Corinthian. Um, A Corinthian was a rabble rouser. A Corinthian was a person or a group of people behaving in a perverse way. A Corinthian uh, is viewed as someone whose morals and mores are so low that it would amount to the Old Testament concept of shame. It would be shameful to mention the things that were done in Corinth on um, on a sociological level at the intimacy of sexual perversion. And that would include religion. So religion was a big part. It's called syncretism. It was a big part of the kind of um, Athenian uh, uh, Greek culture process of Uh, intermingling with the gods, if you will. And I don't want to stay too long on that, but Paul knew the handful of challenges he had with reorienting a group of people who were Gentiles by nature and given over to this kind of complex identity structural system that really was bizarre and and extreme. And and, uh, it was definitely Roman in its... uh, in its grounding, and it was, it was Greek in its philosophy, and and I could say that the idea is what Paul really uttered in First Corinthians fourteen, around verse thirty-three. I think if you'll pull that up, it might be verse thirty-two. First Corinthians four. Here it is, when Paul says, "For God is not the author of confusion." That's what we're talking about. So here he is in chapter fourteen of the first letter. There's a second letter that we have, 2 Corinthians, and then there's a third one he makes mention of that we don't have in the archives of history. But as he closes out chapter, the first letter, and remember, these epistles are letters, so they're not really, they're not really verses and chapters. Those are broken down so you and I can do study, but they're just letters, like a letter you would write to someone, and they would be running thoughts with running subjects and concerns. And and even in that letter, you might deviate from the topic and go into little anecdotal stories. You get that even with Paul. That's what I love about him. He's very down to earth. He's a real man. And and this gets into other aspects of theology, like how does God use a human being to bring about inspired narratives and inspired prose and inspired uh, teachings and those human beings themselves being perfect. Well, God knows how to do that. He can, he can frame language in a way for you and I to extract the truth, even though the person being used is very human and very flawed. But imagine Paul being a father. And I've already told you to think through that lens, haven't I? Imagine Paul being a father and the Corinthians being his children. 
And one of the things he wants to now lay down before he goes into the second epistle, which will be much more a very open and candid plea on Paul's part to get them to understand the danger they are in. He's a lot more formal in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he's really pleading with them. Here he says, God is not the author of confusion. That means whatever constitutes your worldview, whatever is your sort of structural premise for how you view the world and how you engage the world, whatever is your sense of personal participation and anticipated uh, response on the part of the world towards you, to advocate or embrace an ideology of confusion, you must know that that does not come from God. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Now, when you make that kind of statement, what you are asserting is that the people to whom you are speaking know something about the difference between chaos and order, right? If you're talking to your children, it's going to take me a minute, I can see, to get you guys in the house. But if you're talking to your kids and you have trained them properly and they they know something about structure and boundaries and protocols and behavior patterns and uh, uh, rewards and consequences and know something about uh, uh, the meritocratic uh, outcomes, they know that they can be blessed with Uh, with some kind of uh, response on the part of parents if they do good and do right. All of these are structural things that help human beings function in the world in a way in which life can be productive and, and prosperous. And when the children understand order and structure and don't do it, but do the opposite, what the parents will say, hey, you are actually now advocating chaos particularly within the domain of our home. And we don't want you engaging in chaos here because if you engage in chaos here, you're going to engage in chaos out there. And there are not too many spaces in the world where you can be chaotic and prosper. That's why we would tell our kids, be punctual. We would tell our kids to know how to talk to adults. You don't talk to adults like you talk to your peers. We would teach our kids to know the difference between an ontological male and ontological female. We would teach them how to understand the hierarchy of older kids if you have multiple children. My youngest child does not get to have the same benefits or merits or responsibilities as my oldest child. And there's going to be a whole lot of... uh, distinction between one child and another because we don't live in a strict egalitarian system. An egalitarian system is not reality. Some people have more, others have less. Some people have more gifts, others have less. Some people have more motivation and drive, others have left. Now less. And so what you're dealing with when you look at a world where it demands order and structure, But at the same time, it recognizes differentiation and distinction and different qualities and different skill sets. We have to learn how to hold those tensions together, do we not, in order to have an outcome that we can call productive and thriving. Those are very good words, productive and thriving. So what Paul said is, for God is not the author of confusion, but of what? Peace. That's exactly right. 
And then he makes a general statement about the body of Christ. He says, as in all the churches. So now what he did was not only gave the church at Corinth an immediate subjective framing of their calling as a local congregation, but then he also said, now everywhere gospel churches are established, this is what you should see. You should see a group of people who has as their, um, their, their, their chief organizing principle, God and their awareness of God through Christ, God's word, and that they are engaging in a process of overcoming the chaos they grew up in. Because order is a process. Like you have to teach your kids how to be in the world. So when we're talking about being orderly, we're talking about being trained, being instructed, being developed and cultivated into something that we are ordained to be. And all human beings are, and certainly Christians are as well. And peace is going to be the outcome of submission to a process that leads to order, that leads to progress and leads to success. Would you agree with that? Peace is going to be the outcome. I'm not going to drill down into it too much, but the absence of peace is the presence of anxiety, the presence of stress, the presence of depression, the, the presence of chaos and confusion and ambivalence and all kinds of deleterious uh, emotional uh, expressions that uh, indicate that I'm in an unstable situation. You would agree with that as well. So we wouldn't we wouldn't want no we wouldn't want anyone to be in a situation where they're not operating in peace because we know the opposite of it is torment. Um, and if they are in a state of torment, we know they need help. And to not want to help people who are in a state of torment, no matter what the measure of it is, can be ever so small. When you recognize they are there and you are not willing to help them, then you and I are not actually exercising love. I am my brother's keeper. So in the community of the faith, what we are always trying to do is help men and women experience salvation at the health level that salvation promises. Does that make some sense? Salvation is a health level paradigm. I think it's um, try second John verse three. I think second John three. I, I was working on this a uh, while back, thinking it through uh, maybe third. Or that's second John one. Let me see second John three verse three. If it's there, it's probably going to be second um, John. That's second John verse one should be verse two and then verse three. Is there a verse three there? There it is. Let's see. So it's going to be third John, third John, verse three, verse three. Maybe that's going to be the one that will come up in a second and see if we can grasp it. Here's a promise up. So it's not that's not it. Let me find it, because I remember this being quoted a long time ago. And I want you to lift this up and take this with you as we are thinking about um, thinking. Yeah, I'm in third John, verse two, John, third John, verse one and two, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that you mayest what? Prosper and be in what? Even as your soul prospers. So this is a, this is a euangelion. This is a, a eulogy, a good word from Paul in his, uh, from John in his benediction to the people in his era that he wants them to be in good health and to what? Prosper even as their soul prospers. That's a real wonderful way to think about people. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Because it's not ipso facto that we're all in good health. 
And the whole concept of health is holistic. That's what the idea of health means, to be holistic, to be healthy in mind, body, and soul. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 5, verse 23, I think, will help us with that too. I'm just, I'm just cultivating your thoughts so that we can begin our study. He says, here's the promise of Paul and the very God of peace. We we're just talking about that, right? Sanctify you wholly. See that word holy means completely. So a, an experience of grace in terms of your relationship with God should lead to wholeness. Sanctification should lead to wholeness. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be what? Now, this is a good segue into what we're going into. This is a great segue. The prayer of the chiefest of the apostles is that you and I would be completely engulfed in God's care and provision in our life, both in our spirit. That is our uh, divine intellect in our soul. That is our personal psychological makeup, unique and different from everybody on the planet. You are a soul as I am a soul and we are individual souls and we don't share souls. We do share spirit. But we don't share a soul. A soul is individuated like eight souls that were in the ark when the flood came upon the earth. We're going to be talking about that a little bit tonight. Uh, And then we have a body, do we not? So this is what we call a trichotomy of understanding human beings when they are completely whole. For those of you who might be interested in it, when you and I are not born again, we are not saved. We are dichotomous in our expression. We are soul and body. But we are not spiritual. We are spiritually dead. So the man that is merely in an unregenerate or an unsaved state thinks soulishly. And soulish thinking is mere earth thinking. It's thinking about the things of this world, the things of this life. It does not have a profound interest nor drive to make connection with the true and the living God at the spiritual level. That was our condition before we were saved. All the labor of man is for his belly in an unsaved state, right? So that's where I was, and that's where you were if you know anything about the B.C., before Christ era, right? And when God saves you, he brings you up into a dimension of reality that we call spiritual things, where the Spirit of God now connects with your spirit, raises your spirit from the dead, and brings you into communion with him. Now your spiritual mind is open and your spiritual disposition is driven towards God. This is what makes you open to biblical truth, to a reality of who God is because you are renewed in your inner man by his spirit. That is a trichotomous being. This this will help you. So when you're when you're dealing with a person who does not have connection with God at the spiritual level, you're dealing with a dichotomous being. Dichotomy simply means that individual may be absolutely phenomenal on a secular level in terms of all kind of practical earthly things. And they are your compadre in the sense that you and I are all created by one God. They and us as well. We are all under one God. What they don't have, however, is an impulse towards God because they are spiritually dead. That's Ephesians, that's Colossians, that's Jesus, everybody. That's why Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. And he was dealing with that in two categories, the spiritual dead burying the physical dead because the spiritual dead does not know anything about spiritual life. So all they can do is bury. They don't know anything about baptism. 
Baptism is for the spiritually alive. So having made this observation, notice what he says. Your whole spirit and soul and body are to be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can actually look at that on a, if we use a kind of metaphor, an analogy of that verse, this here is kind of a gospel embalming. This is a gospel embalming. Does that make some sense? Of course it does, because if you understand the dichotomy of what we are in Christ, I am spiritually alive, but my body is dead. But my body is preserved because it's bought and paid for by Christ. And I am embalmed in the care of God covenantally so that one day this body will also be renewed and resurrected and brought into total integration with my spirit. Does that make sense? Right. And so it's very interesting. But we're getting ready now to deal with processes that relate to that, that have to do with the body of Christ at large. Not your body, not mine, but the body of Christ. So looking at first Corinthians chapter five, let's start at verse eight. First Corinthians five, verse eight. I'm getting ready to walk through this now. And then you and I can just go into this in the Q&A if we have time. So what Paul is doing now in first Corinthians chapter five, verse eight, he's going to actually address what must take place in terms of excising what we're going to deal with here in a moment called X what communication. That's what we're getting ready to deal with. Excommunication. He says over in verse nine, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the leaven, old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of what? sincerity and truth. And we talked about that on Friday. I'll come back at it in a moment. This should be the characteristic distinction between people who know God and people who don't. The community of the faithful should not be a community that is predominantly manifested by the characteristics of malice and guile and wickedness. It should be a community of sincerity and what? True. Then I share it with you on Friday. Sincerity on Tuesday. Sincerity doesn't mean I am intending to do what's right. This is what people will say. I was sincere. I meant to do what's right. Right. No, that's not what that means. What sincerity means is being honest enough to be clear about who you are and what you're doing. That'll help you. So when you're growing in Christ and you're growing in God, particularly coming out of a behavior pattern where what we are told in Titus and Ephesians, we're going to go there, is that we operate as deceitful persons when we're unsaved. Would you agree with that? The moment our children become conscious and are aware of their own ego imi over against anybody else's ego imi, the, the struggle for the need to manipulate. The struggle for the need to influence, the struggle for the need to obtain is seen in our deceitfulness. You can learn this when a child begins to use his or her tears and crying to get what they want from their parents. You call it cute as a parent, but really what it is is a diabolical method of deception to get what they want. They're pulling your emotional coattails because they don't know how to ask for it. Or because they want it so bad, they need to dramatize it. And again, you guys know that what I'm talking about now has happened to be certain kinds of signals and characteristics of our present generation. Are you guys keeping up with me? Those of you who are keeping up with me know that we live in a culture right now that has lost maturity. 
as a society, it is not operating as an adult. Our society is operating as a child. Paul talks about this and, and, and Isaiah talks about it as well. And so when you're dealing with a society where the pathology of human beings is one of a child, you have to look for those childish traits to show up because they don't have the sincerity to deal with you straight up. Am I making some sense? And so the connection between sincerity or honesty or clearness, being authentic, Authentic in the sense that you're discreet, yes, but you're making sure that you're putting enough of who you really are out there so that people can know that you are clear and sincere. That makes sense. And then the second one is truth. Aletheia, as I told you before, aletheia simply means that you and I are in pursuit of what reality is according to God and truth is what sets you free. All right. Truth is what. So a community of believers that are really seriously pursuing God are going to be people who are negotiating earnestness and honesty and candidness with discretion. Remember, you're in a warfare, so you can't tell everybody everything about yourself. I want you to get that. That's not what you do. You don't do that with your kids. You'd be stupid to tell your children everything about you. Because I can tell you when they reach a certain age, they're not telling you everything about them. And that's the reason why is we're all sinners and we will collapse at the level of confidence towards one another at times when we are not right. Does that make some sense? We're all sinners. And so one of the things about being honest and being sincere and being consistently clear about the authentic self requires winning trust, winning trust. So where you can develop honesty as a mutual reciprocity with people, you can be more open and more consistently true. But where you can't, you won't. And you can't expect people to be that way with you. If you have been anything less than honest and sincere and equitable with them. Am I making some sense? Right. People have every reason to clam up, shut down, shut the door, look at you through a peephole. And talk to you right there. They won't have nothing to do with you until you can prove that you're safe. I'm making some sense, am I not? All right. So this is what Paul is saying. Keep the feast with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now he's going to get into the practical things that are going to constitute our uh, our conversation at this point. Look at verse nine with me. He says, I wrote unto you in an epistle that again is that epistle that we don't know. Okay. But here's what he said in an epistle to not keep company with what? Well, okay, there you go. Now what Paul is saying is I told you how to behave with people who don't know how to behave in terms of the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? I told you how to behave with people who don't know how to behave when it comes to the kingdom. There there can be a lot of good questions that can come out of that one if you just wanted to work it through. But Paul is getting ready to actually practically apply it so you you and I can draw it out. So um, he says in verse uh, nine, he says to not keep company with fornicators. Now, the first thing I want you to understand is that when he uses that phraseology, not keep company with fornicators. That concept has to be understood contextually. It has to be understood in the context in which that particular um, uh, prohibition is to be employed. 
So he's going to explain to you that this doesn't mean to behave towards someone who is engaging in fornication as to put them on an island so that they are isolated from the world in perpetuity. He is not saying that. Did that make some sense? But people have often, the church has often employed that kind of tactic in excommunication, not understanding that when we're dealing with discipline or the uh, purpose of excommunication, it's in order to safeguard something. So when we're talking about be informed, prove it, test it, protect the domain, isolate the threat, because the threat now is like a virus, right? We're talking about that, right? The goal is preservation or what we, what we would call healing, preservation uh, and healing of the what? The body. That's what we're dealing with right now, are we not? We're dealing with a modality of injunction that says, let's go about the dichotomy. That is a medical term, to cut away. Okay, wherever you hear the term otomy in the medical book is to cut something out, to cut it away in order to preserve the body. And we just heard about preserving the body in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. God preserve your whole spirit, body and soul until the coming of Christ. Well, how does he do that? Sometimes things have to be what? Cut away. Right. Now we want to deal with that, however, in the context and the way that is to be applied. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators. Here it is, verse 10. This is what we call an exegetical or an explanation of the previous verse or imperative. Here it is. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this what? Okay. So here's kind of what he means by that. First of all, he's saying the category of fornicators that I want you to not keep company with are the fornicators in the church. So that's the first distinction we're making. He's not saying I don't want you to keep company with or in, interact with or have relationships with the fornicators of the world or else, as he's going to say, you'd have to go out of the world. This is a real insight to how much fornication is going on in the world. Listen to what he's saying. You get not all together with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. For then, must you needs do what? Go out of the world. So what he did was expand the category of sinful behavior just enough to let you know that what we're not saying is that you don't have absolutely anything to do with any kind of fornicator. He's saying there are, is a kind of fornicator that you need to not keep company with. Then there are going to be other kinds of fornicators that you will have general proximity of all kinds of business to have to deal with them. All right. And, and even some of us will understand that at the tension between sanctification being set apart and, and making sure we're living in a way in which we are pleasing to God. That's a tension. But also in the world that we're calling to evangelize, that's a tension. All right. On the one hand, I want to walk with God in such a way as to please him. On the other hand, I want to engage lost sinners for the glory of God. And, and actually, that's not an option. I am going to be in the um, sphere and realm of unsaved people. I am going to be in the sphere and realm of people who are fornicators, idolaters, extortioners. You name it. I'm going to be in that environment unless, of course, I'm living on an island. If I'm living on an island and you can take that as a metaphor, if I'm living on an island, I cannot be a full grown Christian. 
If I'm living on an island, I can't be a full grown Christian because to be a full grown Christian is to engage men and women like Jesus did. He ate and drank with publicans and sinners. It's in the present indicative verb form. That was his common life. In other words, he didn't leave the world. He was in the world. So now we're holding a tension between being in the world in one way and being in the church in another way. Those are the tensions we're holding. So what Paul is saying is in the church, what you cannot do is let these maladies and behavior patterns that are indicative of the world, extortioners, covetous, idolaters, et cetera, et cetera, be so rampant in the church that you are indistinguishable from the world. Because the church is called to be distinctly different at certain levels. Common at one level, distinctly different at another. You see why I'm telling you got to hold tensions? By the way, holding tensions, being able to embrace complexity, being able to deal with antinomies. Antinomies mean law, two laws that seem to bump up against each other. Okay, ye who love the Lord, that's a law, hate evil. That's another law. And you got to know how to hold those intentions so that one doesn't dominate the other. Right. Like we can't be all hate, but you can't be all love either, because if you're all love and there's nothing called hate, then there's nothing called love. That's the law of non-contradiction. If there's such thing as love, there has to be such thing as what? Right. That equal opposite definition and reality constituting the grounds for the former. And so here's how Paul puts it. He says, for then you must needs go out of the world. Verse 11. And I'm going to come back and give you some points and work it through. But now I've written unto you not to do what? If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator. Oh, there you go. So again, the idea of keeping company has to do with this idea of excommunication. So if you and I are looking at the word in its um, uh, syllable construct, we have X, which means out of, right? Then we have the next word really is the word communion. True? Yeah, communion. So when that person who is professing to be a believer is engaging in fornication or some of these other gross behaviors that are unacceptable at the sociological level, we can talk about it in Q&A, write it down. Don't miss this study. This is very important for you and me. When a brother or sister or a couple or a group are behaving in a fashion that constitutes an antisocial behavior in relationship to their profession of faith in Christ. When you become a believer in Christ, there are behavior patterns that are expected of you and other behavior patterns that are expected not to be there. They are to be restrained. They are to be contained. They are to be uh, processed. They are to be dealt with. They are to be eradicated, if not immediately over the long period of time. Does that make sense? That's called sanctification. So so when you meet a healthy body, what you're meeting or a healthy believer, when you meet a healthy believer, a healthy believer is engaged in the arduous process of sanctification because sanctification simply means to grow and mature and develop into a kind of person where that God can use you as you prosper in your relationship with him. I'm going to say that again and then let it go. So to be a 
mature believer in Christ is to be one who has gone through a process of sanctification where you have matured, you have developed, you have grown, you have gone through the rigor of learning what is the good and acceptable uh, will of God is. That's that's Romans 12, verse 2 and 3. So when you meet a mature believer, he or she is not perfect, but he or she has matured to the level where there are characteristics that emerge and qualities that show up in their life that they've learned how to say no to certain things and yes to other things. And they have done the yes, no, yes, no, no, yes, yes, no, no, yes. Over a long enough period of time where it becomes integral to their nature. That's right. That's, that's, what, that's what Paul is saying. This is, this is called a spiritual sacrifice unto the Lord. Romans 12, 2. Pull it up. That's the whole point of Romans 12, 2. That you give your bodies a living sacrifice unto the Lord. In other words, you don't create a false dichotomy between your body and your spirit. Because your body is your representative. This is it right here. Everything that God is going to be glorified in in relationship to you consist in this body, even your mind. You're not giving God a shell. You're not giving him a carcass. You're giving him a body. That is a whole bios. You and I are a biological system by which God is glorified. Like your body is an integral part of the feedback dynamic of what I told you earlier as a spiritual person, you coming to know God. You can't know God without a brain that is able to interface with a conscious that is able to interface with a echo system called hearing that's able to interface with a heart that that beats and blood that flows. And there is a uh, neurological system that knows how to actually understand language and respond to it. Am I making some sense? Right. So what I'm getting at is that uh, the holistic understanding of our bodies are essential to understand what it means. We are to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and in our neighbor as ourselves. You split your body and your soul, and you will never arrive at that kind of reality. That is the Gnosticism of the first century of which Paul had to deal with and, and, and John had to deal with in terms of John saying, whosoever denies that Jesus came in the flesh is Antichrist. Why is he saying that? Because the assertion that you and I can have a theoretical, conceptual understanding of God that doesn't have the qualities of invading our internal being at the transformational level is a false religion. Because it doesn't reflect the fact that God himself took on a human nature and integrated what we call the hypostases, the spirit and the body in one nature. Does that make some, sen- some sense? Now we're getting into the mystery. We got the divine nature, we got the human nature, and they're showing up in this integrated form that we call the God man, right? And what we say as Christians is we are a partaker of the divine nature too. That when the spirit of God is in us, we are new creatures and there is a mystery to the fact that I am a partaker of the divine nature. It's a mystery. But it's easily declared as a propositional reality. 
You would agree with that. This is very important because today, as you and I are dealing with an assault on the body, as you and I are dealing with an assault on the body, they are creating category errors around what it means to be a human being so as to discard the body from the continuity that that body demonstrates constituting who you really are. So if a, if a man is going to say, I am a woman, what they have done is created a level of dichotomy contrast that violates the continuity principle that your body is an essential component to the identity of who you really are in your soul essence. You cannot, with any scintilla of seriousness, look at the totality of your physical body and reject it as essential to who you are in what we call your gender. Your gender emerges from your body. Right. So but it's important to understand the failure of that is why men and women are missing God because of a violation of that continuity principle. Right. And Christians who are ignorant of these warfares will aid and abet that community of antichrist manifestation as well. Am I making some sense? Right. Right. It's so very important to know then that if we're going to help our society, then we're going to have to know what it means to love the Lord in our bodies, which are his, which is going to be Paul's argument here around fornication. You guys all right temperature wise? Okay, good. Here we go. So notice what he says. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? As a living sacrifice, not a dead one. You don't get to chop it up in 55 different pieces. It's a living sacrifice and it has to be acceptable unto God, which is your rational, logical, logicals is the term, your logical, your word oriented service. Did y'all get that? Reasonable means logical. It's not illogical. It's not irrational. It's not emotional. It is propositional. It is theological. It is propositional in the sense that we worship God through a paradigm of knowledge. That shows us who we are and who he is and who we are in him. And when we get it right, we can be a model to the world of what it means to be saved. And when we fail to do that, we can't be a model to the world. Jesus is the ultimate paradigm. Is he not? Is he the model man, the model human, the model God man? You didn't hear a peep out of him wondering whether he was male or female. He didn't violate any of the categorical orders that were co-extensive to who he was. He had a father type in Joseph. He had a real father in God. He had a real mother that he had a relationship with at those levels. And then he had real brethren, real human brothers and sisters that he had a relationship at those levels. And then he had the sinners that he was calling to himself. That he had a real relationship at that physical, sociological, psychological, filial relationship. Does that make some sense? Then he has the body of Christ, which is where we are, which is supposed to be coextensive to his paradigmatic model. We're his arms and legs and feet. 
That's what we are. It's called the what of Christ, the body of Christ. So whenever any of the parts of the body starts to lose its mind, it's an indication that that part of the body has been captured by another regulatory system other than God. Is it okay? Did that come home? Right. We wouldn't expect Christ's body to be schizophrenic. We wouldn't expect it to be psychotic. We wouldn't expect it to be operating out of mass, multiple personality types. Or else there would be no oneness to which we are all striving. Remember, there's a oneness in God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So we're striving to be part of that unity paradigm, which means we are gradually and incrementally being brought to understand the same things. That's a process, though. Okay, all right, good. So I just want you to get that verse two. We got a little bit more time before we go into Q&A. And therefore, do not be what? <coughs> right. <coughs> do not be conformed. That is the term schematizo, schematic. And what it means is a schema is a framework, a design, a pattern as well. I told you about that two weeks ago when I used the term matrix. And I said the world has a matrix paradigm and God has a matrix paradigm. He has a schema as well. That term is used concerning Jesus in Philippians 2. He was made in the form of a man and a servant. That's a schema. A schema is a pattern paradigm. Jesus was a servant. He was a man. He was a slave. It's a beautiful thing because he becomes a model for you and I. Do not be conformed to the world. Great imperative. And it's in the passive uh, uh, present verb form. What that means is stop being continually conformed to the world. So let me help you a little bit more with that. Stop submitting yourself to teaching and ideology and influences and dynamics that keep shaping you into the world's image. So I'm going to say that one more time, just in case some of us over here are a little slower, because it's in the passive verb form and it needs to be understood. What the Apostle Paul is saying by inspiration of the spirit, if you don't do anything about it, you will be conformed to the world. That's what I'm getting at here. Like a lot of people think that there's a void in a vacuum. There's like a kind of middle ground, like a space where you can just hang out and nobody has you. God doesn't have you. The devil doesn't have you. I'm just kind of hanging out. No, you are not. You're on one team or the other. And if you're passive, there's a good possibility that you're being shaped into the image of the wicked one. Right. All he needs you to do is be passive, because remember, the paradigm of the matrix. Is that you're asleep. And you're hooked up to a system that's already reprogramming you. Am I making some sense? Right. So when you meet people who are asleep, we are very, very much worried that they aren't interested in their soul. They aren't interested in their soul because they're asleep. And, and that's even more alarming when you are said to be a believer and you just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. No, you're not asleep. You're in a dream state. And data is being downloaded into you constantly. Right? Because we are either the Lord's or we are of that wicked one, the devil. You guys got what I said. All right. So I'll keep going. So what he's saying here is very important by the renewing of your what? Mind. 
That's why we study the word of God. That's why we engage in fellowship. That's why we think. This is why we meditate. This is why we contemplate. This is why we excogitate. This is why we dialogue. Dialogos is absolutely critical. Growth comes from the feedback dynamic of believers as we engage in these real weighty matters of what it means to be in the world. And then it's even more profoundly impactful when you can do it with people you love. Right. So that's the nature of what we're getting ready to talk about now. The reason why there has to be an excommunication of this young man that's engaging in uh, adultery and fornication with his father's wife is because that is so mutually exclusive and um, incapable of harmoniously fitting inside the community of the body of Christ that it has to be excised, automized. Right. So going back to our, our text, let's see if we can work that through. So in my in my extended outline, here's the way I put it. You guys picked picked this up on Tuesday. The practical purposes of excommunication. The first one is the person engaging in an unrepented practice of fornication or idolatry or the other things. An unrepented practice is one. He does not have the privilege of sharing in the table. He does not have the privilege of sharing in the table. So I I want you to get this because if you're new, you didn't get this. The parameters of communion, communion that that individual now has lost privilege towards. He is X'd out of the communion. He does not get to partake of the what? Table. He does not get to partake of the table. Second Corinthians chapter six, verses 14 through 18. I want to I want to read that and I'm going to show you what that means by practice and by analogy. And then we can work it through. Do not be unequally yoked together with what? Right. So here is the principle of yoking. What yokes believers together is their oneness in Jesus. What yokes believers together is their real oneness in Jesus. That's Matthew 11, 28. Listen carefully. Then we'll walk through this and then we'll go into our cunning. Jesus knows his sheep. Now, the sheep don't always know the sheep. And that's okay. This is where sanctification comes in too. But you can know God's sheep by whether or not those sheep are experiencing the same thing you are At some level, to some extent, if they are a sheep like you are. Here's what we mean. Every true sheep of Christ is brought under the yoke of Christ. Matthew 11, 28. Take my yoke. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So one of the first things that a true believer comes to affirm is that outside of Christ, there's no rest. That's Isaiah 57, 21. The wicked are like the troubled sea tossed to and fro, wherein there is no rest. There is no peace, saith my God, for the what? Right. So when we were unsaved, if we said we had peace, it was a false peace. It was synthetic. It was chemical peace. That's how we got peace through chemicals. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And it really wasn't even peace. It was not peace. 
It was a dream state that anesthetized our body and narrowed our consciousness, but it didn't relieve us of our guilt or our awareness of our rebellion. Can I get a witness? I'm going to say it one more time. I'm going to say it one more time because it's important to get. So whenever we are seeking a false savior at the level of peace, whatever it is, whatever it is, there are all kinds of spectrums. If you're going after a false savior and you're employing some kind of medium mediation and that mediation is false, it's never going to completely satisfy your soul at the level of true peace with God because it's a false savior. So it might alleviate some of your conscious uh, struggle, your anxiety, your, your, your fear, your, uh, your stress, the weightiness, as I said in our opening commentary of what it means to be unstable. Right. So as an unsaved person, if you're like the, the sea tossed to and fro, you get used to being unstable. But over time, it has a wreck on your equilibrium. And, and you're struggling now with this. And you need something to bring you into a kind of relative equilibrium so you can function. So you see how I'm doing this? You're still moving, but you're not dealing with the extremes. Because when you're dealing with the extremes, you can't deal with everyday life at this level. At this level, you can. Did you hear what I just stated? We got all kind of false gods called pharmaceuticals that help you do this. But they never cover the soul. When you're here, the soul has been taken up by a profound pharmaceutical called God himself. It's real. And it grounds you in God. And God talks about that. I am your Rafa, Jehovah Rafa. I am your healing. I'm the God that heals you. There's a real healing at the foundation level. And then that becomes a process of dealing with all of the past trauma and, and, and uh, you know, points of triggers that can occur in your life that can shake you up. But as a true believer, you learn to get grounded and you learn how to manage your, your trauma. And that is part of sanctification as well. And you would never recommend anything but God because God is the only one that can ground you and give you that rest that Jesus is talking about. Go back, please, to Matthew, Matthew 11, 28. Now, notice what it says in verse 29. Here's an, this is an imperative in Matthew's eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you. So now as a master, he's going to put a yoke upon you. And what that means is you come under his discipline and his instruction and his control. You're, it's under his control. So you buy an ox, you put a yoke on that ox so you can control that ox so that the ox can actually now be productive as a part and co-extension of you and your program. So when believers are ox, oxen for God, now God is able to control us and take us down the pathway of cultivating promise and cultivating life and cultivating hope and cultivating order. Because when you are treading the corn or you are plowing the field, you are doing it in an orderly, progressive developmental process. Am I making some sense? And God is helping you do that because the outcome of that kind of relationship where God controls us at the yoke level is not one of oppression or tyranny. It's one of love. It's one of peace. It's one of joy. It's one of actual prosperity. And that process of going back and forth, forth and 
uh, plowing the ground and following the ground is in order to sow good seeds so that we can have a good outcome, right? That's the life of the believer. The believer is not free from any yoke. The believer is not absolutely free. He's free under that yoke. How happy is that oxen to have a master like Christ to employ him in a task where that individual becomes a medium for blessing all kind of other people with the outcome of the corn? Am I making some sense? That's what should be the life of every believer. You should know what God is doing in you and through you. That's your goal to find that out. All right. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. This is why we're here. Learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart. Is that true? It is really true. And those qualities transfer to you and me when we walk with Jesus long enough. Because how can two walk together except they be what? So if you walk with Christ long enough, you must come to understand meekness. You are out of order if you're not a meek person. Did that make some sense? Right. You cannot walk with Jesus at ex, uh, extent at extent and not begin to understand the virtue of meekness. And meekness is an absolutely essential quality. It is the capacity to discipline yourself so that your powers are only employed for good. That's important to know. Everybody is blessed by a meek person. And I'll just say it for the record even though I hate these like silly quips, a meek person is not a weak person. Nothing weak about Jesus. Nothing weak about Jesus. There's nothing weak about my master. I just, I can just, I can tell you, I could just talk about that brother. He was buffed. I'm using a metaphor. (laughs) I'm using a metaphor, but I can just tell you he was not weak. There wasn't anything a week about you. His whole physiology, his whole neurology, his whole psychology, his whole sociology, his whole spirituality was completely masculine. But it was rich with a level of meekness that men and women and children were comfortable around him. That's the way we should be. That's the way that's called attractive. That's what men and women should be. So. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall what? This is crazy. I should hurry up and get off this, but as we are looking at the Savior and he's opening up his heart to us, here's what he's saying to you and me. If our relationship with him is right, we don't have to fight with him to get what we need. Look at it. Like, look at that quality and tell me what that looks like in a symbiotic relationship. Look at that quality and tell me what that looks like between a man and a woman. You don't see them tearing the house up, do you? Right. I mean, the reciprocity of strong, grounded, prudent, wise, mature, but but gentle is going to is going to is going to mitigate any possibility of eruption into distortion and therefore into terror and into threat and into fear that comes with carnality. I'm making some sense. Am I making some sense? Right. So we can be sure of this. I'm going to just toss it out there because you came out so you get this for free. When we have contentions, contentions are always a consequence of pride. Never not. Because of pride cometh contention. 
When we're contending, I'd rather have it my way. That's pride. You guys got that? And remember, this is what Paul is dealing with now because they said he's not coming. Remember that? He said, you guys are what? Puffed up. (laughs) Right? So Paul says, I'm coming. That's chapter four again. He says, in which way do you want me to come? With a rod or with what? That quality is called what? Meekness. First Corinthians 4.14. Read it again. Watch it. Do I want to go on? I want to go on. So you caught that. You caught that here. Um, Go back to verse uh, 12. All right, so going to uh, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 4 uh, 15. It'll probably be 15. It's closing out on the chapter. There it is. Uh, okay, then it's further down, further down. 16, verse 16, we'll catch it. Is it 18? Wherefore I beseech you to be followers of me. Some are puffed up that I would not come to you. Keep going, then it was maybe towards 20. I, I'm looking at something else. But I will come to you shortly and will know not the speech of them which are what? But the power, verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. That's dunamis, verse 21. So yes, into the 20s. Here it is. What will you? Shall I come to you with what? Right, now that's daddy coming to whip some tail. Can I just use the, the vernacular of parents? I'm coming with a belt. If, I'm, if you see the leather, you know it's on. And, and, and it's only on because the child has actually now wanted to contend with me. Does that make some sense? Right. I'm not whooping a child. You can ask my daughters. If they smile the right way, I don't even know where my belt is. And my kids are grown now, like really grown. But I'm just telling you, if they smile the right way, the belt disappears. I got to find my belt. Where's my belt? By the time I find my belt, all my fury is gone. <laughs> That's how daughters are. If they, see, because if you, if you grant the peace offering to, to Jesus... He immediately receives it. He immediately receives a peace offering. Right. There's no need for him to chastise us if we aren't aren't belligerent. So meekness produces meekness in communities where we where we where we proffer meekness. This this would be one of the studies I would be doing in our smaller uh, marriage classes. I I certainly would talking about the character of communication that you have to have with each other. Even when you have differences, you can do it with a tonation that emits meekness. You can be in disagreement with a tonation that emits meekness. Does that make some sense? Right. Because then what it does, it says we are always upholding the value of our persons over that topic, over that situation. That situation is never to threaten the relationship. Never to threaten the relationship. All right. Very good. What will you? Shall I come with the rod or in love or in the spirit of meekness? And now we're in chapter five because they still didn't deal with the problem. So let's go go to verse 10. A couple more things. First Corinthians five ten. Here it is. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, for then must you needs go out the world. Verse 11. But now I've written to you not to keep company with it. If, if any man be called a brother, be a fornicator, covetous, idolater, railer, a drunkard or extortioner with such a one. No, not to what? That's the table. You guys got that now? How many of you guys just learned something? I just need to know a good 60 percent of you. Great. Great. Good. This is what I want us to get. I want us to get this because the 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 goal of the gospel is not witch hunts by which we make 
you know, picnic baskets and watch a believer get put to the gallows and, 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 and chastised before the whole congregation um, and, and then go home for dinner. Even though that happened throughout the whole of church history. Sure it did. From not properly understanding scripture. So remember the paradigm is the Passover metaphor. The Passover metaphor is that we ate bread, we ate the unleavened bread and the Paschal lamb in preparation to leave Egypt. Right? So we're eating for strength to leave behavior patterns that are not consistent with Christ. Right? When we, when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are at the common table. And there's only one meal, and that meal is the crucified Christ. He gave his life for us. So we, we eat the bread and we drink the cup, and symbolically it speaks to us being a partaker of the di- divine nature through his humanity. I am the bread of life, which has given my life for the world, my flesh for the life of the world. This is what made the table so powerful. Would you agree with me? It makes the table powerful. You don't substitute the table uh, uh, over against the Bible. You don't get rid of learning things because in Catholicism, they elevated the table so big that people all they thought they needed to do was eat a little bread and drink a little cup of wine and they were saved. You guys know that. That was church history. That's like throw the Bible out, just drink and eat and y'all good. Well, Paul is going to show us that that was a problem. So going to second, give me a few more minutes of time. We're going to kill second Corinthians six is going to underscore this. We're going to start uh, where we said we were in second Corinthians chapter six to unpack this. Second uh, Corinthians chapter six, 14. Let's walk through this. Here it is. But now a second there is be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship hath righteousness with what? Right. This is the law of non-contradiction. How can two walk together except they be? Right. And what communion hath light with what? So there's our word communion. So excommunication means you stop the process of common union at the table. Does that make sense? Okay, watch this. Verse 15. And what conquered hath Christ with uh, Belial? This is powerful as an argument because he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's using the paradoxes of light and darkness, of believers, unbelievers, of righteousness, unrighteousness. Now he goes up to Christ and Belial. Belial is Satan. You see how he matriculates his argument upward, you guys, to the higher level of the grounds of authority by which we have our existence. Can you imagine Jesus and Satan sitting at the communion table? And yet that is, in essence, what Mormonism taught. Mormonism is uh, is going through the death throes right now. It's laying on the bed and gasping and is just about to die because the woke doctrine has shredded Mormonism, too. Mormonism had to give up on its uh, racist history over against black people and others. Remember, they had a hierarchy of their temple worship where you know, only the Aryan race could make it up to the top. And if a man died right, he'd get to have a special planet out in the solar system and have infinite wives and have infinite children. Boy, if that, that, that's one up on Islam, isn't it? 
<laughs> right, I'm just telling you the truth. That's why polygamy was so big in the Mormon church, because, you know, start down here, get your six, seven, eight wives and 15, 20 children, 20, 30. And if you if you die in Mormonism, you go to heaven and get your own planet and you get to populate that planet with as many virgins as you want. Um, how insane. It's insane because, again, it's such a break with a biblical worldview. But for just a moment, because I went there and I want to come back, it is not observed to some ignorant men and doubly ignorant women. That's not observed. This is dangerous. One of the things I'm bemoaning myself right now, I'm bemoaning in that I'm grieving. I'm grieving over my world losing grip with reality. That's what I'm grieving over. I'm grieving over human beings more consistently proving to me that they can't hold coherent conversation <clears throat> and, 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 and deep dialogue, progressively deep dialogue around things that are so super important and that they can't recognize intrinsic contradictions in their own logic and reasoning. And, and I feel super bad about it. I like I feel super bad because I know that that's a consequence of a certain type of exposure to abuse and trauma at the intellectual level. Do you understand what I just stated? you when you are uh, abused, you will lose rationale. If somebody abuses you long enough, you will stop the rigor of coherent thinking. You will dislodge from reality and begin to float into all kind of realms of speculation and, again, fantasy. And you won't know the difference between speculative fantasies and concrete reality. Am I telling the truth? And it's a dangerous thing this is why you got to fight for the kids, because remember what I told you? What a child is, is a hopeful being who over time can mature and develop and grow into a concrete reality representing who God is in the world and thus becomes a savior type. Amen. If we can keep them grounded from birth to adulthood, keep them grounded so that they can actually discover who they are and the powers. I keep saying it. Everybody got powers when you're created in the Imago Day. You have gifts. You have skills. You have to discover them. They have to show up. You should be in communities where that's cultivated so that you think, you think progressively clearer. You think progressively more coherent. You know how to work through conflicts and contradictions and antinomies and all of the things that actually require you to deconstruct notions and propositions and ideas. Kids do it at the youngest age. And after a while, when you can become really good at it, when you become really good at dealing with problems, it's called problem solving. You can help other people solve problems. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Well, that's the process of salvation. Salvation is about helping other people solve problems, too. That's really true. Remember what I told you last Sunday? I'm almost done. I said that the shining face, when God shines on us, it's in two contexts. It's in the context of trouble. We need him to smile on us when we're in trouble. Because we're, we're, we're used to being in the clouds in the fall. Is that true? I need him to smile on me when I'm in the fall. 
because I, I need to know he's present. Remember, that's what Moses said. Lord, do not take your presence away from me. Imagine a loss of the sense of the presence of God. I don't want to I don't want to know what that is. Been saved since I was 19 years old. Struggling with all kind of problems in my life up to the moment. Never have since the time that God revealed his glory to me in Christ. Have I been without a consciousness of his presence? You know what I'm saying? I mean, like all kind of stuff going on, but never have I been without a consciousness of his presence. Like immediately. okay, God, here we go. Well, at least he's present. I'm talking to here we go, Lord. And sometimes I'm the culprit. Do you see Jesse, Lord? Do you see him? He's clowning again. Lord, rein him in because he's about to lose his mind again. Help him remember he's saved. (laughs) Right. That's because, you know, you're conscious. It's called God conscious. That's what Moses needed. You're going to see that coming this Sunday because they're working Moses. He's getting ready to lose it. Moses is getting ready to lose it. He needs God. He needs God. You and I need God. God is our sanity. God is our sanity. Right. And so what conquered hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believes with an infidel? Um, Oh, two more things I want to state and then we'll we'll uh, go into Q&A because it's time. So do not share in the table. Secondly, do not participate nor approve of their evils. Right. So when we are disbanding them from the table, that's a dangerous and scary thing to the person that is now being withheld from the table. Because when you're when they're being withheld from the table, what we're saying to them is you are under such discipline from the Lord through leadership that you might not be saved. Does that make some sense? Right. And the third one is, and therefore judge among yourselves in order to avoid God's judgment. Here's how this works. This is what you and I do. Uh, Verse 11. uh, Go back to to uh, first Corinthians chapter uh, nine. Let me see if if we finished up first Corinthians chapter five, verse uh, 12. For what have I to do to judge them that are also what? Do you not judge them that are what? What would be the answer? Yes. So again, here's the tension. This is why I loved our study. And this is where if you study your Bible carefully, you learn that what appears to you and me to be contradictions are simply larger compendiums of thoughts that bring clarity to themselves down the line. If you go back to uh, chapter four, verse three, Uh, Verse four, notice what Paul says, judge nothing before the time, didn't he? Verse four, ma'am. For I'll give it verse five, because Paul is dealing with himself. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, right? Right. So we took that and lifted that up and said, see, there goes the Lord. He said, don't judge anything. Now we go one chapter over and he says, you have to judge yourselves. Right. And a person that doesn't understand context and the development of the argument might see those as contradictions. Right. All this said was suspend judgment until the appropriate time. Isn't that what it's saying? Y'all caught that? Judge nothing before the time. That means you have to do a necessary investigation. That's what I had in my my points. First of all, be informed. 
and then prove it, test it. Let's see if the information is right. Unpack it. Make sure we're dealing with a, a criminal event. We're not buying into gossip. We're not listen, listening to somebody's distorted argument because they're mad at somebody. You don't want a mob that you can hire to go beat up another believer in the church because you're upset with them. And that, that goes on. That goes on all the time. Now, going over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, uh, verse what we were, I think, verse 12, because I want to begin to wind this down, or maybe verse 13 it is. For what do I have I to do with them that are without? Do I judge them? No. Do you not judge them that are within? Yes. So now, going over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where you and I are often visiting the symbolic analogy of the Passover with the Lord's table. We do this once a month, don't we? Now listen to the language. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. First Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 27. <clears throat> Wherefore, whosoever, uh, I need to go back, I guess, to verse 20, 25, because we're dealing with the table. He says, after the same matter, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament, my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in what? We call it a memorial, don't we? So once a month, I'm getting ready to go to those other two verses and we can talk. Once a month, guess what we do when we eat the bread and drink the cup, which I love to do. We are showing our unity in God through Christ at the most fundamental level analogously, are we not? We're showing our unity with God in Christ at the most fundamental level analogously. Meaning the symbolism in some churches, they would call it a sacrament, becomes a visual picture of what grounds our oneness as we feed on him who is the grounds of our unity, the Lord Jesus who died for us. And when we drink his blood, we are saying, or drink the cup, we are saying to the world that spiritually and symbolically, in the same way we are doing this, by faith we feed on Christ, by faith we trust Christ, by faith we find strength and we find life and we find fullness in Christ collectively. That's what the local congregation looks like when we're doing it. And when we invite unbelievers, which we're supposed to do, particularly on that day, they get a vivid trans image or what we would call macro paradigm of our unity in the bread and in the cup. Do they not? Right. Of which they may or may not get. When we disband and go to running off at the mouth and fail to demonstrate the unity that should be there even at a deeper level of character. And Christocentric thinking. And knowing how to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And doing all things in love. Am I making some sense? So immediately after we partake of the table... We act and practice often like a bunch of ravening wolves shredding the sacrifice and taking it to ourselves. Right, of course. Now, what we're getting ready to find out is God will judge us for that. Look at the next verse. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are showing the Lord's death till he comes. What a beautiful thing for an unbeliever to see symbolically in the bread and the wine when it's done right. Him who is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Like they don't have to even know any Bible. They get to just visually see it. Look at the next verse. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, what? He still has in mind that fornicating young man that's coming to the table with his father's wife and thinking he can eat the table and drink the cup and he's all right. Moses has something about that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He says the presumptuous man who says I can eat and drink tomorrow, I can do the same and God won't do anything to me. So it's happening here. Watch this shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, right? What he's guilty of is irreverence for it. Did that come home? Guilty of irreverence for what the cup and the bread symbolizes. Now notice what verse 28 says. But let a man do what? So, so at least, if anything, examine yourself, right? But now watch what he says. And so let him do what? eat the bread and drink the cup. That's what Paul is talking about in our, in our previous context. So now think about what he says. Let a man examine himself and then upon examining himself, understand the criterion for which he has grounds to eat. Now y'all can raise that as a question as we go into Q&A, okay? You can raise that as a question and you should if you don't know the answer as to how to legitimately examine yourself as to whether you should approach the table or not. You should know the answer, but if you don't, ask it in in the Q&A, and and don't be ashamed. Verse 29. For he that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks what? Not discerning what? That's right. Not discerning the cup and the bread, and by extension, the body of Christ that he's a part of. So what if some arrogant, pompous, deluded, professing Christian arrogates to himself the participation in the bread and the cup and is an abject rebellion against God? And it's publicly known. And the saints see the behavior. He's not only indicating irreverence for the symbolism of the bread and the cup, which if you know your Bible well, If God tells you to be respectful for the symbolism, there are consequences when you don't. This happened in the Old Testament. Fellow was, uh, he was in one of Moses' preaching services and Moses was preaching kind of long like I do. And uh, I guess he fell asleep. This is Moses. And this was about the seventh Sabbath day. And and, and, and Moses told them in Exodus 31, we're, we're jumping past that right now. Moses told everybody, now I want you to know something about God. Just want y'all to get there. This is my last point. I'll be done in 10 minutes. You know, that means you're going to be there for another hour. You do know, right? <laughs> Moses says, I got one more thing to say. I got one more thing to say. Well, I got your attention. Oh, yeah. You are not to do anything on the Sabbath. You are not to pick up sticks. You're not to light a fire. You're not to do anything. We're passing through the wilderness. You make sure on this day you rest because it is a sign that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And because you are a model representation of him, you must reflect him in the area of rest. Your job is not to tell men and women to work seven days a week. 
the Lord your God is able to give you abundantly above all that you ask or think in six days. On the seventh day, you rest with God and let the world see how he takes care of you. Oh, by the way, the man or the woman that thinks that they can take sticks and create a fire, which is a symbol of working and laboring. And it's an indication that God is not adequate. He will be put to what? Well, there was some brother that totally missed that last addendum on Moses' message, didn't he? It was cold one morning. This is between Numbers 11 and Numbers 16. I'm not going to take you there. Cold one morning. Everybody in their tents, sleep. And somebody out and you could just hear the bushes ruffle. And a couple of the old ladies, you know, the old ladies, they're always the ones that I ain't got nothing to do. They had already been up drinking their coffee anyway. They looked out there. And they told little Joseph, go tell Moses, that man out there. That was a horrible day. That was a horrible day. This is what we're going to learn on Sunday. You have need of patience. All that brother had to do was wait till 6.01 in the evening and he could have started a fire. See what I'm getting at? All right. For he eats and drinks unworthy, eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30. For this cause, many are what? And what? And many what? Die. Let's die. Do you see that? Right. So Paul gave you an insight into what happens to disobedient Christians when they don't take the things of God serious. You guys keeping up with me? Right. I don't need to say anything about it because we've been a community long enough now to know. Do you hear me? I don't have to say anything about it. This is why the Bible says both in the Psalms and in the book of Hebrews, God judges his people. Does that make sense? Right. So the blessing is he tells you and I to examine ourselves. All right, I need a runner. I need a runner. So we're taking a few questions tonight before we get out of here. Raise your hand if you want to ask a question over here. Over here. Yeah, let's get it. Let's get it going. Then we'll get out of here. Let me see some. As soon as you get the mic, please start asking the question so we can wrap it up. All right, Jackie, start talking, please. Okay, my question is, um, you were talking about the divine nature, Christ, which is Christ in our body, but you also mentioned the soul, and um, I just wanted you to explain that a little bit more to me to make it a little bit clearer. I also mentioned what? Um, mind, um, okay, the divine nature. Okay, so you saw that in First Thessalonians 5, 24, right? right? You saw right. that. Right. All right, so I need you to meditate on that reality first, not on what I said. I need you to be able to capture the fact that your Bible talks about your whole body, soul, and mind, right? Your spirit, right. mind, and spirit, soul, and body. You caught that? Yeah. Right, so what I said was that your spirit is your, your intellect that is connected with God at the spiritual and propositional level. Spiritually mindedness is the ability to comprehend reality according to God. 
Spiritually mindedness is the ability for us in our Imago Dei to be able to understand God and agree with God at the moral and the ethical and the spiritual level. Okay, that's that's to know God is to be spiritually minded, right? So you guys remember Romans chapter eight makes it very clear in verse six and seven. You can pull it up. I'll just let these run, but just listen. To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Stay with me. Spiritually minded, right? You caught that? Spiritually, we're dealing with the first category. Spiritually minded. So when men and women are saved, they have the mind of Christ. That's Philippians chapter two, verse four. So now we can think God's thoughts after him. Is that true, ladies and gentlemen? At the soul level, when it's just our human psychological makeup from birth, if we are spiritually disconnected from God, we can't commune with God. He's a speculative theory because we're disconnected from him at a spiritual level. This is what it means to be unsaved. All of y'all have been unsaved. You know what it means to be window shopping when it comes to God. You can walk by the window and you can look in and you can see all of the apparatuses that talk about God, his nature, his character, his work, his patience, his long suffering. But you have no tangible, practical contact with it because you're dead. Does that make some sense? You know you're not connected with God, even though you speculate. Louis, turn that turn the heater on to heat for me right quick. You even though you speculate, you 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 know you're not connected with God. Is, am I am I making some sense? Right. So uh, this is what I love about honest people, too, because what Christians are supposed to be are bridges for lost people to cross over into a safe state. So in our unsafe state, we're supposed to be clear about what we were so that we can tell men and women who are still that way. We know what you're dealing with. We know you don't have a sense of connection with God. We know that. We were there. That means to be spiritually dead. That's your Bible, Ephesians 2, 5 through 8. For we were dead in trespasses and sins, and God quickened us together with Christ. At what level did he quicken us? He quickened us in our spiritual essence. That's what he, uh, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, around verse 14. So carnal mind... The things of God are foolishness. But to the spiritual mind, God now can make known his precepts to us and they make sense. Did that make some sense, ladies and gentlemen? And this is true, by the way, at the earliest stages of life. Like to be connected with God at a spiritual level does not require you to have a high school diploma or a Ph.D., You can be in connection with God at the youngest levels on a spiritual level. And and you'll meet, if you ever meet a child that's in communion with God, he has a continuity of awareness about God and what is called an implicit faith in God because he's been born again. John the Baptist was born again in his mother's womb. Filled with the Holy Ghost in his mother's womb. That means when he came out, as he was growing as a boy, he had no contradictions with God. He's still a sinner, but he had no contradictions with God. Are y'all keeping up with me? So when he went to school and was taught Torah, the Bible studies to him were live and powerful and relevant. And for him, they were axiomatically true. So You have to be intellectually hijacked 
to where, again, when you're sleeping, someone enters into your brain and shut down your thought processes of God and puts in a new program and tells you, you now need to not believe in God. That's what, that's what older people do. Okay, so our... So, so, so hold on for a minute, because I'm talking to the whole of the group too. So at the spiritual level, it's going to always be understanding God in terms of propositional truth. This is why God is talking about truth claims, not feelings or any of that. Truth claims at the intellectual level. At the soul level, the soul is your psyche, is your neurological system operating at a conscious level. That conscious level will have all kinds of opinions and views about life, about origin, about purpose, it will. It will be elaborate. It gets multiple PhDs in understanding the universe, understanding all kinds of sciences, and it can be uh, articulate in its argument about man being nothing but an amoeba, a developmental process of evolution. It can do all that. It can do all that. And still, deep down in his soul, he knows he's speculating about what he's rejecting. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It suppresses. Romans 1, yeah, 18, it suppresses, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because they're not connected to God at a favorable level. So, so when you and I are unsaved, we are actually operating in a kind of aversion and hostility to God. What does it look like? It looks like the Genesis 3 narrative when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. No longer were they in fellowship with God, they were running from him. They were disconnected from God. They had already started the process of dying. They were dying mentally. We call this the noetic effect of sin. They were dying socially because they were distancing themselves from God. And they were going to die ultimately, physically and spiritually over time if God didn't hunt them down. Did that help you? Yes. So our soul is carnal then. It's, it's a carnal um, the psyche is kind of carnal. Not kind of, totally it, carnal. Okay, totally <laughs> carnal. <clears throat> and it has to be conformed by the renewing. The spirit of God has yeah. to enter into you right. and quicken to, to, your mind at the spiritual level so that the soul is brought into conformity to the will of the new man. That's what Galatians is teaching, that the spirit lusts against the flesh. It has to bring your fleshly nature into conformity to spiritual principles. And that's the battle we fight every day. Does that make sense? So one of the evidences you're truly saved is that you are in a battle of submission to God. And you know that and you are thankful for it. Okay, you got that? You're thankful to be in that battle. Who has the next question? Very, very good. And there can be more said too. Marlis. It says, when you, one of the verses talked about for those who are for, fornicators, others, and, and then the covetous, they're not to eat at the table. I want to know, um, I feel that I have struggled with covetousness, and I have, I recently talked to the Lord about that. Does this disqualify me from... Um, I guess at the table, I think you're talking about the communion table on one level, but also just at the general table of fellowship with believers. Mm -mm. Nope, nope. I'm only talking at one level. Okay. Right. And I'm talking at that one level in order to indicate that at that second level that you may be inferring, there's already a break in fellowship. 
All right, so let me, let me see if I can touch it. I'm glad you're raising the question because this will help all of us. If, if you, again, as a Christian, you got a whole imperatives intention, don't you? You have to hold them in tension. If you swing too far on one side, you're going to have an observed outcome that makes no sense. If you swing too far on the other side, this is what we call legalism versus antinomianism. And the balance is being able to understand what we mean by being simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. Obviously, when we are acknowledging that we live in this spiritual battle, that means we are addressing sinful impulses and sinful uh, propensities and bent. Does that make sense, you guys? It means we are addressing those things. When we find ourselves engaged in a prolonged submission to a pattern of sinful behavior, this is what is meant by examine yourself. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 4, 4 and 5 as well. And, and the reason would be is, is there something taking place in my life now that has hijacked my commitment to earnestly contend for the faith and to strive towards the kingdom of God and to make my calling and election sure and therefore fight the good fight of faith. Is that a good question? I want to repose that so you can get it because these are germane to your own personal walk. We are all striving with all kinds of dynamics. It's just a reality. The question will be, do I engage those particular dynamics of impulses and inclinations, external temptations, vain desires, etc.? Do I engage those things from the standpoint of faith in Christ with a knowledge of God's word to disagree with them internally and then set out not to submit myself to them on a practical level? Because what your Bible is saying is, that, um, that we are to understand that if we walk in the flesh, we will fulfill the lust of the flesh. If we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what your Bible is saying. So Romans chapter eight, verse 14, you can pull that up. That's one for you. This here is what we call a, a model for dealing with the carnal tendencies, a model for dealing with the carnal tendencies. Look at what it says. We lose our, our areas. Um, uh, start at verse uh, 13, please. I think it's verse 13. Um, Romans 8, 13. For if you live after the what? All right, so stay right there. That's that carnal man we're talking about. That's, Paul is treating that whole subject in chapter 8. If you live after the flesh, that means if you pursue gratification of your carnal tendencies, if the main thing for you is you only live one life, and you're going after it now, then it indicates that you are dominated by a carnal mindset. Does that make sense? Sure it does. You got to grasp that there. For if you live after the flesh, you shall what? That's axiomatic. That's what Eve did when she chose to disobey God and follow the serpent. So her and Adam were moving away from God. And they died. So for the believer, because we are simultaneously righteous and sinful, there's a part of us that we know we have to struggle with, which is our fallen nature, craving towards those things. But that first line is describing a propensity and a bent, not a momentary temptation. If you live after the flesh, that's not a momentary temptation. That is a propensity towards as a continuum of behavior. 
Y'all keeping up with me? Right. Like you get up every day with that as a maximum mission in your life. Oh. Okay. So, and I'm not going to overcomplicate it because that would put us down in the rabbit holes. You guys know that, right? Because you guys have been mature enough to know you don't want to overcomplicate propositions because you don't have to. If you and I are born again, what we know is joy comes when we are pursuing God's will. It's not hard. Joy is there when we're able to pursue God's will. And when we are not pursuing God's will, we are struggling with peace and joy and confidence because our faith now is being mitigated by a lustful tendency. So it's one of the things I tell you and I all the time. Do not abuse your faith. Don't abuse your faith because this is what God is. This is what Christ would warn about. Paul would warn about. He says, no, no, don't play games with your faith because you can hijack your faith and arrest your faith and shut your faith down and just be given over to carnal tendencies. And now your faith is not operating at the power dynamic that it needs to for you to say no. You guys hearing me? Wow. Right. Listen to what he says. But if you through the spirit by the spirit. Abba, Father. That's what he's getting ready to say. Help me, Lord. A great analogy is the one where Christ is going to the cross and he's feeling the impulse to not want to do it. Isn't he? Yes. And he says, I got to pray. And he takes three with him and said, fellas, pray with me. And they couldn't. And he wrestled and God had to send him an angel to help him. Remember when he says, Lord, if you will take this cup away from me. That's a, that's a powerful, this is also what we mean by being honest. Our Lord was honest. And then he he brought three buddies with him because he was trusting they would understand his struggle. Right? Because I told you, don't do this in a cave. Don't turn your home into a cave. Keep the windows open. Keep, have doors so your neighbor can come in. If you don't invite them in, I need you to pray with me because I'm struggling with something. How, how, you guys tell me, how precarious and how unnerving it is when you are not on the brink of falling into a trial. It's unnerving. Yes. Yes. Amen. That is something. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. It's, it's unnerving. It's unnerving. Because when you are in that level of weakness, you have sown that. There are subtle areas in which you were saying to God, I need some space. You know that. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Because like when you ask God to draw near to you, he will. And if you don't, he won't. But he will rescue you when you fall. And he'll catch you when you stumble. And he'll help you if you are being tried. Remember, tried, stumbling and falling is progressive. He can catch you at the trial. If you just go help, Lord, Jehoshaphat 
in his naivete hanging out with Ahab because Ahab wanted to fight against the Syrians. And God said, you guys are unequally yoked. But Jehoshaphat said, "Okay, we cousins, we're going to go to war. And then the enemy is coming after Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat realized he was in the wrong place. He cried out, Lord, help. (laughs) And the Lord delivered him. This is what I also mean. This is what is also meant about meekness and humility. The Lord gives grace to the humble, but he'll resist the proud. And a lot of times we fall because we're proud. Does that make some sense? Of course. Of course. So the falling and stumbling and all that, and that stuff can be painful. It can also be traumatizing and it can also be Demeritus, meaning if I'm falling too frequently into patterns of sin, I'm going to lose my capacity to be fruitful at large. You keeping up with me? Right. And I really do mean that like. You have to be you have to be able to negotiate how much of a blessing you want to be to God and to other people. You have to negotiate that like, Lord. Like, this is really true. You have to like, you have to be able to know that like God can do like so many things through you. If you're available to him and you just ask him, please know that. I remember when God saved me again, I'm living at home. So I'm about 17, 18 years. I can't remember now, but I was at home, a broke young (laughs) You know, just about adult broke, but still sleeping in my bedroom that I slept in from 12 years old. So, but I do remember I was working and had a car. So I must have been about 17, 18 years old. And that's when, when God drew me by his grace. And I remember not knowing what to do because I didn't grow up with God. I didn't grow up in church. So now that I had this relationship with God, because he revealed himself clearly to me, my wife, who was my girlfriend at that time, used to read the Bible to me. I told you guys that when we were clowning. Right. That, 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 the red letters was really out. what, I, the red letters would jazz me. I don't even know why, but can you read the red letter verse? Can you read the red letters to me? Is that what Jesus said? Read the red letters. And, and God saved me. And now I'm trying to figure out what to do. I don't know what to do. What do you do do when you don't know what to do? You ask like a child asks his parents. So what I said to God in prayer, maybe a couple months into my walk, Brother Mac, Sister Cindy, Corinne, I used to say, Lord, whatever, just use me. Just use me. That's what I would pray all the time. I don't even know what to do. Just use me, Lord. Just make me a vessel for your use. I meant it too. And he did. Right. Right. It's that simple. Like that's all I ever kept praying because I didn't even know how to pray. When you from the hood, you don't even know how to pray. I would just say, oh, Lord, you know, in the name of Jesus, I go to church and you hear the old ladies, they know how to pray. Oh, Lord, in the name of Jesus, use me. That's all I would say. So I locked in on that until I discovered my gifts. Right. And I said, oh, let me, let me, I love God's word. Let me see what this is all about. And the next thing you know, he's bringing people to me. And I'm talking to them about Jesus. They're actually listening to me. That was like wild. At 19, 
old people listening to a 19-year-old brother from the hood. I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. But you get excited about being used by God. And so I just kept doing it and kept doing it and been doing it for 40-something years now. And it's like I wake up every day and I go, this is crazy. You're still using me. Right? Like all over the world. Like in that, I, the, 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 uh, the extent of it I had, there was no conception of extent. It was just wanting to kind of feel like since I'm saved, you know, do something with a brother. I don't, I don't know. Right? That's what I'm talking about. And so I started pursuing God. That's when the trials really began happening. And then I remember, dang, I'm in a serious warfare. And I had to learn how to fight the warfare. But what I was doing in fighting that warfare was continually pursuing what it means to be used by God. Does that make some sense? So I was learning what Psalm 1 teaches us. How to say no because you've already said yes. Blessed is the man that does not walk, does not stand, and does not sit because his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he's constantly meditating. So he gets grounded and he bears fruit. That's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Does that make some sense? Right. This is what young people need to know. If you just ask God and you just wait, he'll show you. It's not that hard. I got to move on. Next question. Who has the mic? Praise the Lord, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. God is so he amazing. Yes. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the epigenetics and the trauma thing keeps coming up. So trauma leads to sin, but what happens if you don't think you were trauma or you had trauma and are there different levels of trauma that I know that all, because I realized that I learned here that all sin is the same. So is that the same thing with trauma? All trauma is the same? I'm going to let you back up and go, I don't know if I'm getting what I'm saying right. I don't know if I'm getting, I, I don't really know. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to help you. So going back to first and foremost, um, the presupposition that we are all, to some extent, the products of trauma. Just, just presuppose that, because that's what sin does. It traumatizes you. Just presuppose that. If we mean by trauma, gripped by emotional and psychological patterns of behavior that are the direct consequence of some kind of personal or relational abuse from our youth. Of course. Of course. You, got, you guys got time for this conversation? Of course. This is so logical. So think with me for a moment. I don't think there's anybody in the universe of humanity that doesn't know the pain of human relationships at the dysfunctional level, even as small as a child. 
All right. I'm, I'm, almost con- I'm almost convinced that I don't have to massage this in your mind, but I do know that people are listening to me. And they'll say, Pastor, unpack that. Please unpack that. And I really shouldn't have to. This is where you and I should be really thanking God for memory. Because what you should do with memory is be able to go back and reflect and work through how life has oriented you in a way in which you can identify markers in your past that shape the way you think and feel and therefore act. Does that make some sense? I can go all the way back to two and a half years old. Can anybody go that, go, go that far back? Good. Now, now, everyone could if you were helped to. Because this has to do with consciousness and, 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 and perception of environment and, and, and analyzing things. Which, as a child, you can do at the earliest of ages, but not necessarily intellectualize what you're experiencing until you're older. But if you're not too badly fractured at the psychological level, you can go way back and look at lines of historical events in your life where things were happening to you or by you, where they actually impacted you at the at the level of personality traits or resolves to be this way um, are compelling to be this way. Really, because as a child, you are dealing with a lot of dynamics that are beyond your ability to manipulate and control with the exception of other people that you may have manipulated and control on your way up to adulthood. Am I making some sense? And then there are a lot of events that actually impacted you at the subconscious level that took on emotional frameworks of triggerings that would, would, would play a role in your choice making. That's right. You know what I'm saying is true. Now, when you go back and look at it, why you were afraid to do this, why you were afraid to do that, why you were compelled to do this while you were compelled to do that, why you were uh, bent on doing certain things. Like when I was a little child, I was, I, 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 I was like completely enamored by setting fires. Okay, so now I'm laying on the couch and the psych is all inside my head right now. But I did. And I can trace that back to the youngest of ages. And, and I can see how it led up to a certain aspect of my teenage life too. But see, these are common stories we all share too. Some of my brothers and sisters in here share that with me. Rock throwing was another one. Right. So, and then we can go across a whole litany of things that are part of the common experience of the social dynamics that play a role in shaping you and shaping your behavior. And, and, and indicating that you and I are fallen creatures that under the rubric of being a sinner. Y'all keeping up with me? The fundamental meaning of being a sinner is to miss the mark of righteousness. Hermation in the Greek means to shoot an arrow towards a target and it falls short. So when the arrow falls short of hitting the mark, it means that I have sinned. Does that make some sense? 
So when I would seek to do good, evil is present with me and I fall short of the good that I would do because the evil impedes me. So now think about growing up when your when your efforts in the preponderance of them result in missing the mark so many times. What kind of framing that produces for you in terms of how you're going to deal with the world in addition to the powers that are coming. So like not only are you missing the mark subconsciously in the area of achieving goals and trying to beat things that people are asking you to be or what you want to be, but you're also now acquiring powers. Am I making some sense? Because you're going into teenagehood and, and young adulthood and adolescence and all that. You're acquiring these. Now you're going to use these powers to change the mark. So if the bullseye is over here, and you're over here and you're shooting and missing the bullseye. You're going to take the target and go, I'm going to move this target so I can get right here. And then you shoot and it still comes short. So what we're doing with that is we're finding ourselves in this kind of uh, inexorable struggle with trying to make ourselves all right. Am I making some sense? Sure, sure. I'm trying to make myself all right. This is called the moving target argument for I'm not as bad as other people. Well, that's because you're moving the target. That's because you're taking the arrow. You're not even shooting it. You're just stabbing it inside the thing. Say, boy, I'm pretty good. (laughs) And that's the way we cajole our thinking when we're not quite ready to admit that we're a sinner. Because to admit you're a sinner is an act of faith. Does that make sense? Like it, when you meet people who come to that resolve that I'm, man, I'm missing the mark. What we're often saying to that person is, like Jesus said, and like Paul said, Jesus said it to um, the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler said, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus said, give it all up. He says, I've done this, I've done that, I've done that. Jesus said, good, you've got only one more thing to do. Sell your goods, give it to the poor and follow me. He was close, wasn't he? That's what Jesus said. Paul is talking to King Agrippa. And Agrippa is saying, you know, Paul, thou almost has persuaded me to become a Christian. Close, wasn't he? Paul said, I wish you were. Just like me, saved without these chains. So men and women will come close to the kingdom. And and that, that actually is something that you need to know in terms of this. In our world, they're giving you all kind of falsehoods about immutability. Like parents are going to be punished if they intervene in their child's confusion around gender dysphoria. Because what the state is going to tell you is that's a natural characteristic of their original gender design. And for you to help them orient out of it is criminal and abusive. Did that make some sense? If that policy comes through, it means the Christian gospel is done. 
because the Christian gospel is about helping everyone come up out of every kind of sinful pattern because we do not believe that those are immutable traits that cannot be resolved through redemption and salvation. In fact, we know that because all of us have come up out of that mess. You used to be a fornicator. You used to be an adulterer. You used to be an idolater. But such were some of you. But you have been changed. First Corinthians 6, 9. Am I making some sense? Right. So if Christianity loses the argument as to the efficacy of the gospel, then you're going to, you and I are going to have some real problems. So going back to our sister's statement because it started getting cloudy with you. This is what we just need to do some personal counsel again because it's getting cloudy. All sin is not the same. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. All sin is not the same. So he that knew his master's will and did it not will be beaten with more stripes than he that knew not his master's will. That's Luke, Luke 12 for you. Torah said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Those are called categories and degrees of severity and thus punishment. Does that make sense? So in the law of reciprocity, if a man inadvertently cuts off a man's hand, equality is to cut off the hand of the man that cut it off, if he did it intentionally. But it's not that you take his life. So it's, it's called justice. Does that make some sense? Also, for those of you who don't know, there are degrees of punishment in hell. And I'm not referring to Dante's Inferno, even though he, he got some good points there. I'm talking about your Bible. Hell has lower dimensions of it for people that are far more egregious in their hatred of God. Like Jesus said, it would be more tolerable for Capernaum and, and, uh, and some of the uh, regions around Galilee that will come up. Then for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's Matthew chapter 11. So that's the idea of gradations of punishment because of gradations of behavior. Are you following me? To whom much is given, much is required. So, so what I say is the church is more culpable of levels of hellish judgment than unsaved people are. Because the church knows more. Did that make some sense? And the New Testament church is more guilty than the Old Testament church. The Jews will be punished in hell for rejecting Jesus. And the Gentiles will be punished in hell greater for knowing Jesus and rejecting the gospel. Did that make some sense? Right, because the longer you and I live, the longer you and I are culpable of what God gives us as an increase of knowledge. This is why I also stated, do you guys mind me explaining these things to you to help you? This is why I said a couple, two or three weeks ago, as I was dealing with the baptism issue, you need to be careful about talking about Judgment Day. If you don't know what you're talking about, you shouldn't do it. Judgment Day is not just a day where God is backing up with a dump truck of allegations and taking everybody and just casting a bunch of people into hell. It's not the case. Judgment Day is when people will come to God one by one 
in a judgment that is after the resurrection, when everybody is brought into a full state of body and soul again, and in that eternal state, which has nothing to do with time, the eternal state has nothing to do with time, so you can sit up and wonder, man, how long is it going to be? You're way out of your category. We're in eternity. Time is of no essence. Did you hear what I stated, ladies and gentlemen? When we are, that's what the text says, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 says, and I saw the heavens and the earth, and there was no more heavens and earth. What that means, no more timekeepers. We are in eternity. In eternity, you're not conscious of time. And he says, I saw the small and great standing before the great white throne judgment. And they were judged out of the books of those things that they did, whether they were good or bad. Now, everybody is doing different levels of sin who are found in that judgment. Did did y'all get that? That's called a righteous judgment. God's not sending everybody to the same degree of hell for some small sin that they committed in rebellion and disobedience against God like he will with Hitler and Mussolini and a bunch of other folks that have committed heinous, demonically atrocious crimes against God and against man. That would be an unrighteous judgment. God would be unrighteous, would he not? Are you guys hearing me? Right. And I said, I said, build the categories all the way down. There is what is called an age of accountability with human beings for which then they become consciously, deliberately culpable for their actions. There's no doubt about this. You take a little baby who doesn't know its left hand from its right hand. And can you imagine him or her at a year old or two years old or even three? Who knows what the age of accountability is? God knows. Being brought before God and God, this massive eternal intellect. You were thinking wrong, little Jimmy. At two years old, three years old. Are you guys hearing me? See, this is where people are not thinking things through. So you read your Bible carefully. There's a point of time in which there is an accountability with every human being where they are rationally aware of their their impotence and, and disobedience before God, for which God will be appealing on the grounds of their conscious knowledge of their rebellion and disobedience as he brings his law to them. Does that make sense? Did that make some sense to you? Right. This also helps you stop making a God out of a monster if you don't know what you're talking about. So then what about all those children that die before that point of accountability? Those children were predicated to that state of dying beforehand by a God that knew them before they even lived. So, I mean, walk that through. You don't need to celebrate. Walk it through because you got to help people. If you love someone and they have a three-year-old child that dies or a four or five-year-old child that dies, how can you talk to them about God and the uh, eternality of that child. Most of us say, oh, that child is in heaven, and then we don't even base that on anything. Oh, he's in heaven. We know he's in heaven. Okay, on what grounds? On what grounds? No one is going to make it into God's heaven apart from a relationship with God through Christ. So then what's happening with the child? Those child, those children that died before a point of accountability where they render before God the choices that they made in this life were covered by the blood of Christ. Mm, 
They were chosen in Christ. He protected those babies. Did you guys hear what I just stated? This is why David could say, the child is not coming back to me, but I'm going to the child. And it wasn't because the child made a decision for Jesus. I'm sorry, decision for Jesus don't save you. It's God's decision for you. That saves you. This will liberate you. This will liberate you. Am I helping somebody here? This will liberate you. Think about this. You know, it, not, my brother back there got two beautiful children. All my kids, every time I preach, they would preach right, right when I'm preaching too. I thought they would all be preachers. We always worry about our children dying young. We want them to live and grow and mature and become something in the world. Then we get freaked out when they get old enough for us to know they can go to hell for the way they're acting. Right. That's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? Oh, Lord, they just like me. Have mercy on them. Uh, <laughs> but if we should lose our child at a young age, there are a couple of things that bring comfort to the people of God when you know this. This is why we want every child to be saved. We don't want any child living outside of the scope of God's mercy on a practical social level. This is why the early church begged people to give them their children when they wanted to just throw them in the dump heap at the end of the city because they didn't want to raise them right. You guys don't know, you and I live in a world today where because of Christianity, we're much more dignified in dealing with children than we were before the Christian era. You must know that. Men are vile, and the evil that's happening to children today is unspeakable. But it was happening in the first century Roman Empire, and it was happening in the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, horrible things to children. And that's why Jesus said it'd be better that you put a millstone around your neck and cast yourself in the depths of the seas than for you to mess with these babies. Now, you didn't hear prophets of these other religions talking like that because they poked those babies. And you know what I mean, because it's going on today. It's going on today. So when we're talking about loving on children and having a framing for them both for this life and the life to come, how comforting is it to know that a sovereign God knows every human being that comes into this world? No child is born without it being the permission of God. And if they come out of the womb stillborn, God had a purpose for them. And their eternity bound soul is going to be clutched up in the hands of God the Father because Christ will have paid for them who was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Did that make some sense? This is why we believe in election and predestination. I need a God that saw me before I had a being. I need a God that had a plan for me before I even entered into his world. I need a God that had a way of intervening before me, even because my parents failed and set me up to fail. I need a God that could meet my needs. In other words, children coming into this world need God more than they need anybody. Because they didn't ask to come. Am I making sense to y'all? And so then when, when our brothers and sisters do lose a young one, I'm very comp uh, competent and very confident when I explain to them who God is in his nature, 
his mercy and his justice, and in his wisdom and his scrutiny about judgment, that his judgment is some, not some sadomasochistic expression of his power and he's finally mad with everybody and just want to throw him to hell. Hell is not lying with the skulls of little babies as some of the sick theologians may have engaged in many years ago. Am I making some sense? You don't have a Bible verse for it. That's one of the mysteries of God that would be better for any Christian to be able to hold on to in terms of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord. But the things that he's given us, let us boldly proclaim them and obey them. But in the mystery of the childhood dynamic, what we say is the all wise God who said, go forth, procreate and fill the earth with all of the. Uh collateral damage of the loss of children in our world from the beginning because there are many natural abortions that take place. Women don't hold babies all the time. Am I making sense? That whole list of stillborns, uh, the babies abort because they, they don't reach full term. Uh, that, that goes on a lot. And there's a reason for that. God has a, he has an ecology around that that you and I must know. Is that possible? Is it possible that there is an ecology around God having the proliferation of human beings on the planet from the beginning of time up to now where a certain portion of them never live in this world? Am I making some sense? I think that's going to unfold to us when we see God in glory and realize there's a gazillion babies here. Perfect, complete. Full and whole, said we couldn't wait for you to get here. We're so glad God chose us and saved us. And we skip past the judgment. I see again when we get to eternity, that's a whole nother conversation. Chron- chronological categories, that's something else. You got to know that. Do y'all understand what I just stated? We're done with chronological categories like we're, we're dealing with now. So you and I must not be thinking in first order things like, well, can the babies talk? Of course they come, they have souls. Just imagine them entering into a full status of eternal spirits from the moment they leave the womb and go to glory if they're stillborn. Am I making sense? Good. Very good. So I wanted to cultivate your thoughts around that, because if you live long enough, you're going to have to try to comfort somebody who loses a child. And you should be able to do that, child of God. See what I'm saying? So you and I get a chance to talk. One more question. I'm going to shut it down. One more female. Anybody else? Oh, good. I'll need somebody to help me take my board down. And let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, Jashana, we'll deal with those lengthy questions on that other stuff down the line. Uh, Stand with me for prayer. Oh, by the way, we're going to be having a, uh, a men's meeting at the Tracy campus tomorrow night for anybody, any of the men. We're going to be, do, I'm going to be doing the teaching. I've emailed a lot of you guys, but every, all you guys are not on the mailing list. We're going to be teaching men how to lead in worship. So if you want to come out or if you want to follow us on, I think it's Zoom, live stream, you can follow us on live stream or Zoom. You guys can just catch us. It starts at 6.30 out at the Tracy campus, but if you want to learn something about it, you can come on out and join us tomorrow at 6.30, um, learning how to lead and worship, how to, how to do that. That's an interesting thing, and uh, so I'm, we're teaching our men that. Um, other than that, yeah, Father, thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you for the saints. Thank you for the study tonight. Thank you for helping us to walk through 
some of the things that make for our sanctification. You are a just God. You are a righteous God. You're a holy God. And uh, we thank you for your grace, which is in Christ. We thank you for saving us freely apart from works. But we also thank you that those whom you do save by faith and grace, you grant them the ability to work for your glory and your honor, not to merit anything, but because you would be glorified in the lives of others through our efforts and labors as your sons and daughters. Help us to know what it means to live for you and to serve you um, as a local community and, and to be a blessing through your body of Christ everywhere in the world where they call upon your name. We're asking for the forgiveness of our sins and guidance home safely tonight, Lord, and prepare us to worship you on Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.